Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Michael Binkusky. And Michael is going to be talking about a lot of interesting things, including how to properly reduce bunkers on a golf course. But before we get going with Michael, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a huge supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports numerous industry efforts and initiatives, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad to have Better Billy Bunker involved with this series, and we're glad to have Michael on with us. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. And for our listeners that don't know, Michael is based in Chicago. And the first thing I got to ask you, Michael, is what is it like following baseball this October without the Cubs being in the World Series after the euphoria last year? Well, thanks, Guy, and thanks for inviting me onto the show here. I've been a longtime fan here and glad to be part of it finally and glad for all you guys do at Golf Course Industries for the game of golf and for golf course architecture. This year as a Cup fan, it was it was a lot different. I guess you win a World Series and you go into the next year with a little different expectation. And the one thing was you didn't really worry too much about if they were going to win it this year because you had just won one. So when we got into the playoffs this year, we knew, I mean, I kind of knew whether we had the team really to compete that far, but they started playing better. But we knew that the Dodgers were probably the best team out there. So even losing this year and talking to some of my other friends that are lifelong fans as well, we took it a little bit easier because we had just won. So you knew that we're in there for the long run. And really to get to the championship series three years in a row has been a, a great thing for the team and for the town. So, you know, it's only going forward with everything else. I think they're just going to be better and better. Uh, they got the right people in place that they can make the changes. So really being a Cubs fan has been great. And now with hockey starting up and with the Blackhawks, we're really looking forward to wintertime as well with that. So it's been a good time in Chicago so far. Yeah, and let's be real. I've passed through Chicago a few times this year in my travels. The party from winning the World Series last year, that really hasn't stopped yet, has it? No, no, it really hasn't. Like you say, everybody's still so excited about it. Uh, you know, it's one of those places where when you go down to Wrigley Field and if you've been there, uh, you just want to keep going back. The area, the atmosphere, everything just kind of carries its own. So, Okay, now we're going to switch to another game played on turf and on highly manicured turf golf. You recently completed a project in Chicago at Arlington Lakes, and there were some really cool things about the site. In fact, it was a Cold War missile base. What was it like working at a place with that type of history, Michael? It was. It was the old Nike uh, missile base there, and there's still uh, Army base and Army offices that are around the golf course. What they did is when they developed the course back in the 70s, they actually went to the to the Army and to the government, and a lot of the um, people around the area wanted a golf course, and they asked them, and they said, hey, can we get part of this land and build a golf course? So they had to go through their senators and everybody else, and they were able to get about 90 acres of land in order to build a golf course that went around this this army complex so when they did that uh, it's still part of the the base obviously is still there but as you say there's Nike missile silos that are still underground under the golf course so we got some tunnels and some silos there they're all covered up obviously and you don't see them as you're playing the golf course but they're still there and they do still impact the, the golf course from a maintenance standpoint sometimes There'll be a little settling that will incur out there. Uh, the superintendent will have to go out and will have to repair that. Uh, it just kind of happens from you know, settling around these missile silos and, and the tunnels that are still underneath. 
so that was quite interesting. Luckily, we never got into it when we were doing the construction because we were able to stay around the greens and the tees with most of our work. But it did happen that we got a little sinkhole right uh, two days before the opening day, so they had to go right in front of a green. So they had to go out and repair that uh, real quick. So, uh, like I say, it was, it was quite an interesting project and, and the site and being able to work around there. You always wondered as you walked around the golf course what was happening inside the buildings in the Army base, what kind of secret information they were working on. But every now and again you'd see some people, you know, jogging around the site or some some guys out there in their fatigue going around. So it was quite interesting. Yeah, do you ever feel the, the history of the site when you work at, on a place like that? I've been to the Greenbrier where they have the Cold War bunker. Do you ever get, like, chills or, or creeps or think about that era when you were doing your work there? Dad was an Army veteran, so you kind of thought more about um, just kind of, you know, what takes place in there, that the people that are actually working in there and what they're they're doing and that they're, you know, taking care of our country and, and that they volunteered to do that type of work. So you just kind of think about it that way, that there's some, you know, a lot of courageous people that are out there doing that type of stuff for us, and you kind of lose, lose track of that, and then when you see it, it kind of brings you right back down to earth, and you realize that, you know, it takes a special person to be out there and doing that for you. What was unique about the Arlington Lakes project? From what I understand, you did some interesting things with the routing of the golf course and made it so that you could have different options of play. Probably the biggest interesting thing when we started interviewing with the with the park district was here we have a 5,400-yard golf course that's in the middle of the highly dense, densely populated Chicago suburb, and there's golf all around. So we're dealing with this type of golf course where we have courses all around that might be six, 7,000-yard golf courses, championship golf courses. Um, Medina's probably about 10 miles away. And when I went in there and talked to them, I said, hey, you guys don't want to be this other type of golf course. You have your niche market uh, with the golfers that you get out here. They get a lot of senior play. They do a lot of league play, uh, women, juniors. They just have that type of market that they catered to already. They were doing about 40,000 rounds a year, so they weren't lacking in play or anything like that. It was just the golf course was a 1970s golf course that had just you know, kind of grown old and, and some lack of maintenance in some areas. So I explained to them that, you know, let's build on what you have here. Let's not try and reinvent everything and go after a market that you really shouldn't be going after because you're doing well as you are right now. So when we were working through the whole process, it was basically, we, you know, being on 90 acres of land, we knew we couldn't expand the golf course. And, again, we didn't really see that need. So we actually went forward with tees, and we actually started shortening up the golf course in some areas. And we have a set of tees up about 2,700 yards that we're able to use, again, from a beginner standpoint, from a junior standpoint. So that was really part of the initial talks when we were, when we were out there and working with them. The other thing I noticed right away from the beginning was um, the 18-hole course, they had, you know, returning nines, but on their back nine at the time, they actually had a three-hole loop that kept coming back to the clubhouse. So on the back nine, it was the 12th, the 15th, and then the 18th hole would all come back to the clubhouse. Right away, I explained to them, I go, why don't you reverse the nines, and why don't we go and have the third, the sixth, and the ninth hole now come back to the clubhouse? Gives you the opportunity to get out there and market and and develop three- and six-hole loops for golfers. And really it was more thinking of it from, uh, one, the time standpoint. People just don't have a lot of time to play golf, so if we can get them out there 
even if they come out late at night and play three holes or six holes, at least they're out there on a golf course. I grew up on a golf course where we had the second and the fifth hole all come back to the clubhouse. And there would be many times you'd go out at 7 o'clock at night and maybe play five holes of golf just because you wanted to get five holes of golf in and at least get out on the golf course. The other standpoint then was um, from a junior play, trying to get the junior program to be able to utilize that, and it's worked well from that standpoint. Probably the biggest thing from growing the game right now that we see, obviously the game is difficult to begin to learn, but with the time as well, it just takes a lot of time for, the, for golfers to get out there. From a junior standpoint, not only is it hard, but if it takes that long, they start to get bored with the game. So we said, hey, if we can get them out there to play three holes, if you're a six- or seven-year-old kid, play three holes of golf, get them back into the clubhouse, let them get a hot dog, something to eat, something to drink. They had a good time. They got off the course. They can go do other things. But when they come back to the golf course, they'll realize that they had fun the first time doing it, and they'll come back to do it again. That combined with these shorter tees, explain to them some junior golfers might take four or five shots to get up to the green then it might take them two chips to get on the green three putts or scoring eight to ten strokes on a hole not only do they get bored playing a long round of golf but they get tired hitting that many shots so with these short tees where we have par fours that are maybe 130 to 160 yards long they can get up to the green or close to the green in regulation hopefully chip on right away um you know Two, two putts or something like that, and now they're getting fives and sixes and pars sometimes, and they're having fun doing it. So it really worked out well from the standpoint that they had all this already in place. It was just kind of taking a fresh look at it. They, they really hadn't looked at it, and that's why we asked people to bring in architects because from an outside point of view, we're able to take this fresh look at everything and really start to say, hey, there's some other opportunities here that we can develop and we can work with. From the three and six all loop standpoint, when we started developing that, it really didn't cost any more money to look at that because it was already in place. Now, we did end up rerouting three of the golf holes um, more from a flow around the clubhouse standpoint with circulation and then also to help with some safety features. Uh, but from a cost standpoint, it really didn't add that much cost then to the overall project. So, like I said, they were able to get a lot for what they had already, really take advantage of it all. And it's worked out real well for them so far. Yeah, Chicago has more public golf holes than any market in the country. How important is it for facilities to try something different like this? Not everyone can be Medina number 3 or Butler National or Olympia Fields. How do you convince a facility it's niche in the marketplace and to try something different? Sometimes that becomes real difficult. Uh, and it does depend on, on the golf course that's out there as well. Um, you know, sometimes the place would might want to try and do that, and if they're going to, I guess it's, it's really our job to kind of go through all the pros and cons when we're talking about what can we do on your golf course and how we how can we make it more appealing to other golfers. It can be done, and like you say, around the Chicago area, there's so much competition that everybody is kind of competing for those same that same group of golfers. Then sometimes what we get into is what can we do that's a little bit different. Uh, whether it be with um, sometimes with bunkering or just some other aspects. Can they offer some other um, amenities on the golf course? Like, say, if we get into these different routings with some three, six-hole or different types of loops where you can get back to the clubhouse, a lot of times you can offer that to, to other um, groups as well. Uh, one thing we are hoping to try, and I keep trying to convince them to maybe look at down at Arlington Lakes with this six-hole six loop, is maybe we can do a six-hole league where 
people that might work down in the city of Chicago and then get back home and have dinner with their family at 6 o'clock at night, and then maybe they can go out at 7 o'clock at night and still play six holes of golf and, and join a league in that regard. So it, it does get very difficult in that sense, but like I said, I think golf is strong, and it's, it's still strong around here, so golfers are participating in, in getting out to these golf courses. It's just you know, maybe if you can attract somebody else, something different, then, then there's that opportunity to try and look at. When you started your career, did you imagine golf being anything but a 9 or 18 home game? For me, it was always, like I said, I grew up on a course where we were able to play, you know, as a junior, we'd play two holes or we'd play five holes of golf. So I guess I always thought of it maybe in the opposite that, and I grew and it was a nine-hole golf course that I grew up on. So sometimes going out to play 18 holes was, you know, more of a luxury. It's like when you got to play an 18 old golf course, you were kind of, hey, I'm on a, on a, a big golf course now. Uh, so for me, it was always kind of, I always grew up with the roots of, hey, you know what, playing five or nine holes of golf was never really bad. Uh, obviously, we got away from that, and I think a lot of that kind of stemmed from the development golf courses that we would build where you'd have nine holes that would go out around housing and then come back to the clubhouse and then another nine holes. So you you really never got that feeling of you're back at the clubhouse every so often. The older golf courses, we find that because when they were designing those, it was more of a match play game. So the designers would try and get as many golf holes as they could, either back to or close to the clubhouse, because you never know when the match would end. So from that standpoint, I think, and a lot of those private clubs that have that kind of routing, I think they do utilize um, you know, members that would just go out there and play a few holes of golf, something like that. Uh, so for me, I guess it was always when, you know, it's just more like that people didn't look at golf, uh, a golf course until it was an 18-hole golf course. That always did kind of surprise me because in Iowa, there's a lot of nine-hole golf courses out there that we grew up playing, and, and every town seemed to have a nine-hole course. So nine holes did always seem for us to be the kind of the, the market that was out there. Yeah, and for our listeners that might not be aware of it, Iowa's got more nine-hole golf courses than any state in the country so it's really entrenched in the in the golf culture there that you can just play nine and have a have a good time and go on to whatever you have to do next now michael you've done some uh, other projects recently and a few of them you've reduced the square footage of bunker sand and the square footage of just overall bunker space explain that process and what are some things you look for when you go into a course that maybe wants a little less bunker maintenance well, bunkers are still probably one of the biggest topics that we run into when we're working on a golf course. It kind of seems when you start a master plan with a with a course, obviously there's always something they're going to look at doing, and bunkers always some, mostly seems to lead the pack. Um, sometimes it's tree removal, sometimes there's tees, drainage, those kind of things, but it does always stem back to bunkers. So when we start looking at bunkers on the course, uh, really, we look at them from a couple of different standpoints. Usually, they're old and they've been worn out, so they're not draining well. Uh, they have problems with maintenance, uh, playability issues because the sand isn't consistent anymore. Uh, so when we start the project, we're looking at that. Then it gets into what do we want to do with the bunkers. Uh, sometimes if they like the style of bunkers, it might be more of a, hey, let's clean out the bunkers, uh, put in new drainage, clean up the drainage, and put in new sand. But, it's, but most of the time they get into where we really don't like the style of bunkers maybe that we have and we'd like to change the style. Then we get into talking about, well, then we're looking at a rebuilding project, and that opens the door up for a lot more ideas that we can put out there onto the golf course. 
And then once we start looking at that, then we can start looking at bunker placement. Do we want to move bunkers around? And we start analyzing, like I said, how much sand do we have on the golf course and, and how much time are you spending to maintain that? As we know, we're spending so much time on bunkers nowadays, and I know you had a good um, Tartan Talks with Ian Andrew that talked a lot about bunkers and where we're going today and where we've been with them. Uh, so it's still that big topic. Uh, a couple of the courses then that we've been able to do that on, we've taken advantage of the fact that we're going to rebuild the bunkers anyway, so what what can we do with it? Uh, I'll go back to Arlington Lakes. That was one really where we kind of started or was an easy one to do. Arlington Lakes, as a 5,400-yard public golf course, had 106 bunkers on the golf course. And we're talking about 100,000 square feet of, of sand that was out there. Uh, each hole, you know, many of the par fours, they'd have four bunkers on each side of the fairway. The greens would have four or five bunkers all the way around the green, so the back of the green all the way around. At the time it was built, they didn't really worry so much about the maintenance of the bunkers because it was more, can we get the bunkers out there to create interest, uh, to make the golf course you know, harder because it was a short golf course. And it was more when we started talking about and golfers got into, well, the bunkers need to be fair, and I don't really want to, start talking about that because that really changed everything when we started talking about designing the golf course and maintaining the golf courses. How can we make it fair, which it really shouldn't always be fair. Uh, so with at Arlington Lakes, for instance, we were able to say as a public golf course, we don't need this amount of sand. You have you know, 10 to 12 guys that are maintaining your golf course. They just don't have the time to go out there and rake the bunkers and do all of this. So with the reconstruction, we were able to bring it down. Instead of 106 bunkers, now we have 38 bunkers, and we have 33,000 square feet of sand. So we reduced it all by 60%, which from a maintenance standpoint was a was a huge deal for them. But when we talk about bunker reduction as well, sometimes it's not the number of bunkers, as in this case, and more times it's the square footage of sand. So another club that I've been working with here in, this, in Chicago, St. Charles Country Club, that's an old Tom. It was an old Tom Bendelo design back in the 20s. In the 80s, they moved the clubhouse and built seven new holes by David Gill. Um, at that time, thinking they were going to rebuild the entire golf course, but they never did. So we have seven holes of 1980s design, and we have 11 holes of 1920s design. So we're trying to combine the two designs with the final master plan. There, it wasn't so much then. So now we're taking the 1980s design, which had... Um, a lot of bunkers with a lot of sand. Again, we'd have four bunkers around greens. We'd have four bunkers around fairway areas. And then the Bendelow design, which didn't have that. Uh, so here we have 57 bunkers, again, at about 100,000 square feet of bunker sand. And with our final master plan, we still have 55 bunkers. So our bunker number stayed the same, but we're down to about uh, 56,000 square feet of bunkers. So we cut the size in half. So it really goes to... Um, what works best from the golf course standpoint as far as size or number, and then where do we go from there? But each one has its own, you know, all of the pluses as far as reducing the amount of sand that we're going to maintain for the golfer. How do you as a golf course architect reduce the square footage of sand or even reduce the number of bunkers yet keep the golf course aesthetically and strategically interesting? Uh, really from that um, it kind of depends on, on the golf course and how we're looking at it. Uh, when we're looking at the aesthetics of the golf course, that really gets into what type of style do they want to see with, with the uh, new bunkers. Uh, at our 
Winston Lakes, it was more of a bunker style that we think we're going to be able to uh, maintain better and maintain a little bit easier. Uh, so from an aesthetic standpoint, uh, we weren't going to look at putting in steep grass faces because they just wouldn't be able to maintain them. So we kind of did a combination of, of some sand flashing in some areas, sand coming down, different grasses around the bunkers, maybe using a, we used a fescue blend around the bunkers where they didn't have to maintain it. Um, so manicured, but yet it gave us an interesting look to the bunkers as well. Um, at St. Charles, they wanted to go back to their, their Bendelo heritage, uh, so we're able to do more of a, uh, a steeper grass-based bunker uh, instead of the kind of flashed uh, oblong bunkers that they had with the 1980s design. So it really brought in a whole new element of um, excitement to the, type, to the golf course that they had. And each one really, again, has its own pluses and minuses as far as what we're looking at doing. And it just kind of gets back to, again, relating to how are they going to maintain them, what can they do um, to help with the maintenance to, to not spend as much time out there on the, on the bunkers. As somebody that grew up in Iowa and working on a golf course in Iowa, then went to Iowa State and played golf, how fulfilling has it been for you to have the opportunities you've had in your career and what has it been like just working in the different parts of the country and in particular the, the Midwest for such a long time now? Uh, it's been, I mean, it's been very rewarding in that case. I mean, like I said, I grew up on a golf course. I worked in a pro shop on a golf course. I worked on the maintenance of a golf course. Uh, I was working on the maintenance when I started getting into thinking I was going to be a golf course architect on a Donna Ross course at Cedar Rapids Country Club and then going to Iowa State and playing at uh, Binkner Golf Course, which was designed by Perry Maxwell. You kind of got a little bit of best of the both worlds with those two guys that you kind of be able to study as you're growing up and, and learning the game. Uh, so then really getting around the area and, and trying to work on some of these courses that I maybe grew up grew up playing. Uh, I had the opportunity when I worked for uh, Loman Golf Designs, we redid a bunch of the golf courses in my hometown in Cedar Rapids. So being able to remodel courses that I grew up playing, uh, I did a new design on a course in my hometown in Marion at the same time. So being able to give back to the community and, and having people say, oh yeah, that was, you know, Michael Benkowski designed that golf course and he went from here to Marion High School and he was one of our graduates. So it's kind of Nice to hear people say that and just know that people enjoyed playing the golf course as well. So getting around in that regard really has been a lot of fun, and I still have a lot of friends obviously back in Iowa and a lot of friends from Iowa State that, that I run into quite a bit. And it's, it's always been exciting when you know they find out you're a golf course architect and that you fulfilled that dream that you're looking to do. That, that always makes you feel good. I was never a golf course superintendent or assistant superintendent, but I did work a bit in golf course maintenance, and I would say that that's helped me immensely with my job and career today. How did working on a golf course in the maintenance department, how has that helped you as an architect? I think it's probably been good and bad in some cases. Uh, I would say the, the good thing is obviously you, can't, you have an understanding of what, what they go through. And, and you know that, hey, where they're at and how they're trying to maintain their golf course and, and what's going on um, with the day-to-day -day maintenance because you're able to look at that. You're able to kind of take into account, you know, obviously we all know drainage is important. And when you work on a golf course on the, on the maintenance staff, you find out that, yes, drainage is important when you're running your mower and you're either sinking in a mud hole or you, 
rut up an area and the boss comes out and screams at you for doing that and you kind of learn hey i guess as a designer you need to make sure that you kind of create those areas that are going to drain well at the same time using maintenance equipment and this again would have been back in the back in the 80s when i was working on the golf course but i would be the one that have to go out and mow banks around bunkers and around greens and uh, using the old national to mow these banks i kind of knew where i could get the mower and where i couldn't and now working on a golf course as a designer and designing some bunkers and you know sometimes somebody might say oh that looks a little steep and you'd look at it and say well i used to mow that when i was a kid so i'm sure you can mow it nowadays so it does kind of get into that um you know, you use your own expertise and then you, you follow up on, you know, some of the things that you've done or that you've seen in the past and try and relate those back to, to what we're trying to do today. One last thing, you've gotten to do some pretty uh, special things throughout the course of your career. What is something that you haven't had a chance to do yet or something that you would really like to try here in the future? Uh Something I haven't done that everybody's always kind of shocked is I haven't played golf in Scotland yet, believe it or not. Uh, I've been to Ireland, I've been to England, and I've been to Australia uh, for golf trips. But every time I've, the opportunity come up to go to Scotland, I just wasn't able to do it. The last time, as, as the ASGCA, we used to go over to Scotland, Ireland, or England every five years with our annual meeting. But when the downturn in the economy hit, we, we stopped doing that just because a lot of us weren't able to, to round up the funds really to get out there and do that again. Uh, so the last time they were looking to do that was about 10 years ago, right after I started my own company. So it was kind of the same thing, wasn't able to, to get out there and do that. Um, so that would be one thing. You know, I would like to get out there, obviously, play those courses and see them and, and enjoy that. Uh, everything else, like I say, uh, looking at doing another trip down to Australia with our group again next year. So that'll be another good trip. I'd have to say Australia from the places I've been, it's probably one of the best if you're looking from a golf course design standpoint. I think it's really outstanding. they got so many different types of golf courses. The bunkering's outstanding down there. you learn just a lot from what they do down there as well. So I've been fortunate in a lot of areas to get around and do those things, but yeah, getting over to Scotland would be one that hopefully I can get over there soon. Well, Michael, we really appreciate the time. I've enjoyed following your work and getting to know you over the last year and a half and we appreciate you jumping on a tartan talks episode with us well thanks i appreciate it too guy i appreciate it. i know we had a chance to play uh, aaron hills last year and that was a great round of golf and i enjoyed that golf course and I'm glad to see that with the how the u.s open was so getting to know you as well over these last couple of years has been great so i appreciate appreciate all you've done and, and look forward to, to many more things